Hello and welcome to the Majlis podcast, Radio for Pride Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis and Radio for Pride Liberty's media manager here in Washington, D.C. On October 24th, Uzbekistan will hold presidential elections since President Shokat Mirziyaev came to power in September 2016 following the death of authoritarian leader Islam Karimov. Though the incumbent is facing four candidates, but none of them is opposition member uh, so there won't be any opposition on the ballot the observers say the outcome of the election is not therefore in doubt so the day will pass basically without any uh, major event but aside from the elections this is also an opportunity to take a look at some of these steps president mirziyoyev has taken in his first term in office and try to read tea leaves whether his next five years will be any different. I know I made kind of weak entry to this conversation, but let's jump into this and do sort of a reality check about Mirziyaev's first term in office, what has been happening, what changed and what did not change and what stayed the same beyond the charm offensive. To discuss all these, I'm joined by Ambassador George Krull in his long tenure as the former U.S. diplomat, among other he also served as the U.S. ambassador to Uzbekistan. Steve Severlu, associate professor of human rights at the University of Southern California. Steve is one of the authors of, in fact, the author of the recent report by U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom uh, on Religious Freedoms in Uzbekistan. And we hope to talk about his findings in the conversation. Barno Anwar is also with us, who is a senior journalist with Ray for Pride Liberties Uzbek Service, locally known as Ozotlik, and Bruce Panier, the editor of Radio Free Pride Liberty's Central Asia blog, Kishlok Owazi. Thank you, colleagues, for joining us today on this important conversation. So obviously, though no ambiguity there, but nevertheless, election is an interesting event that's coming up soon. Maybe we should start from there. Uh, our journalist colleagues, Bruce uh, or Berno, uh, please jump in. Uh, Any one of you wants to jump in here. Uh, how things are going with the campaign? We have uh, like a week to go until election. Uh, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll set the table a little bit and Barno can put, put down the tasty meal after that. Um, there's, you know, this has been like one of the most low-key elections I can remember in Uzbekistan. They always used to try to make, go through the motions of, of everything mm. so that if you watched local media that you would see the, you know, candidate from what, Mili Tiklanish or Adalat or, or Hedepe or something had, was going out and meeting with the voters here or there or something like that. And, and of course, they never said anything critical about the incumbent the whole time, but at least you kind of could follow it around a little bit and see what mm. they were doing. So it had the veneer of kind of an election campaign, whereas that they seem to have dispensed with that. There's really not a lot of reports at all mm about what the competitors for Mirzioyev are doing, where they're going, what what their campaign slogan is or what their promises are. I mean, yeah. you know, and, and I thought it was curious, and Barno would be able to say a little bit more about this too, but the one guy, uh, Alishir Kadiro, who is the candidate from Mili Tiklanish, the National Revival Party, when he was nominated, he said he was going to win, you know, at the start of August. And I thought that was a bold statement from uh, someone competing against the incumbent. But but today, um, for whatever reason, all of a sudden he came up and said that we, they needed to tax remittances. Hmm. You know, and considering how many people in, in Uzbekistan are remittance dependent, you know, the families of, of all these people that are migrant laborers that are working, uh, that was political suicide to say something like well, yeah, that. Yeah, that, that's what um, I was you know, Why you would so, say that too soon to the election? I mean, don't make sense, but yeah. I'll let Barno pick it up from yeah. there. She's, um, yeah. <laughs> she's been following so what that, they have probably that, Yeah, as Bruce was saying, like, that's a very interesting comment just ahead of the election. If you are really genuinely trying to win this election, you wouldn't say those kind of things just one week ahead sure. of the election. 
election. So what else uh, those uh, guys were talking about, those so-called opposition or maybe the rest con- of the contenders? Guys, yeah, the yeah, rest of the candidates, they're absolutely silent. We didn't hear any loud statement, even formal kind of pro-Karimov or pro-government statement. Hmm. We couldn't hear anything like that. But Alisher Qadirif is a really interesting uh, case. And he didn't comment about his recent, this controversial statement, but there are lots of conspiracy. Maybe he was forced uh, to make this statement just to make all these labor migrants to not vote for him. So maybe he was too scared to get a little bit more vote in this election. Forced by whom, Barno? Why he would make this kind of... This is again conspiracy, you know, Mm. because if, if we remember... At the beginning, he made big postures and announcements of him on the streets. Alisher Qadr, the, who win the presidency, as the Bruce mentioned, then he changed it. He, he even changed in these announcements his name. He's, he started to name himself like Alisher Qadir, not like the very louder Alisher Qadir. Mm. So a conspiracy says that maybe he was forced to make this kind of controversial statement ahead of election, just not get more vote for him. Because among the um, labor migrants, even before the elections, at the beginning of this year, he made several statements which was very supported by the labor migrants. Hmm. It's about the national issues. But hmm. now we see mostly the propaganda and the campaign only with the Shavkat Mirziyoyev. Hmm. And uh, there was a critics even by the EU side that he's using this uh, administrative tools for the meeting with the electorate. He traveled almost all the regions by mm. the president's airplane and you know, with all administrative section and mm. resources. Mm. And the mm. other candidates, they absolutely went silent. Interesting. Steve, in fact, you were on the ground when all these things were happening, like because of the research that you were doing for this report that we are going to talk about shortly. So what stood out to you during these campaigns in this election process in Uzbekistan? I mean, it's going to be kind of sort of a tasteless event. Still, I mean, you with some of the campaigns earlier when he got elected in the first place and also previous campaigns. I mean, Islam Karimov also tried to do some multi-candidate elections in the past. So what stood out to you throughout this uh, campaign in recent days? Yeah, and thanks for having me. I mean, I'll, just, I'll start with the fascinating, I think, figure of Alisher Kadyrov, who, yes, throughout the year and, and even previously, he's, he's at times operated as a sort of foil or some would say a distraction. He's been a magnet for controversy, both um, stirring up anti-LGBT homophobia campaigns earlier in the year. Also, of course, famously lashing out at uh, Russian language and stoking nationalism at times. And, mm. and of course, uh, like Barno and Bruce, I agree, there's a lot of conspiratorial thinking about sometimes whether he's used to, in a way, to say things that the government wants to say, but that the president can't say. And of course, we won't know. But but by and large, I, I think what's most profound and most striking and most concrete in this election campaign was, and I was on the ground for some of these developments, was the violence, quite frankly, the Mm. harassment that was unleashed on those that were simply seeking to contest the elections peacefully. That is, uh, we had several people from Mm. the ERC party. We had the Truth and Development Party. Their members harassed, detained for periods of time, and of course denied registration as opposition parties by the Justice Ministry back in the the spring months and the summer months this was picking up. And while this was happening, 
what was interesting for me to see from was was members of the elite, people in Washington that are well known, like Senator Sadiq Safayev, who were in a sense forewarning that these elections would not be all that democratic, actually, that we should that the international community should expect that this will be an incrementally improving election, but still quite not genuinely democratic. And I found that, again, this process that was very well managed, and as Bruce said, very low key. But at the heart of it, we see that the authoritarian habits with regard to conducting elections haven't changed. And uh, the OSCE has clearly identified that and said that there's been, quote, no direct or meaningful engagement between the contestants, no debates, and finally, Mohammed, you alluded to this in your question. I was there for the parliamentary elections two years ago in December, and there at least you did have debates where journalists were present and they were asking about corruption, and it actually got quite heated and, and there was some real politics that were discussed. And I think that's a, that's a big disappointment, both obviously no opposition candidates, yeah. but not even a debate where Mirzoyev would have to address critical issues and account for these past five years. Hmm, very interesting. Ambassador, I have a couple of questions to you. Like one, let me start with this. So as Steve alluded to, OSCE is going to, I guess, monitor the election, right? Am I am I correct? Some yes, way. yes. There is a large number of monitors from mm-hmm. EU side in Uzbekistan right now. Mm-hmm. So what should be or what will be the takeaway for the international community from this election, Ambassador, in the light of what we heard from our colleagues, Bruce, Barno and Steve? Well, to go back to what the other participants in this conversation have said, and I'm looking at this from the vantage point of somebody who hasn't been in Uzbekistan uh, since I left as ambassador, which was under President Karimov, and then these five years of uh, President Mirzioyev. And from that perspective, and listening to the participants and following, as I as I do, the situation in uh, Uzbekistan, that there is a change in what is going on there compared to when I was there under President Karimov, where uh, there wasn't allowed, or I don't believe that the OSCE even wanted and decided to to monitor an election. But the Mirzioyev government has invited them, and they are going to do this, and they are being critical, as has already been noted. But that's that itself is uh, a different. They are opening up somewhat. And just as Steve had said, in the parliamentary elections, uh, there was debate, and also on television and the, and the media sphere sort of opening up to have social questions raised and the like. But I think, and that is something that didn't occur five years ago, and that, which was pretty much shut down. But there's a different atmosphere on that hand in so far as there are for instance i had heard in the past when uzbek government officials would visit the united states or speak to us about the elections over five years ago and it was well you can't expect democracy to bloom overnight it takes time and that's been been a mantra for quite some time and yes it it is true but you can see that there is a a, a campaign to let the, the united states and the outside world sort of to moderate expectations in in this regard. And that's, frankly, nothing new, but they are going out and they're being seen. And there were congressional delegations that just recently were visiting Mm -hmm. uh, in in Uzbekistan and meeting President Mm -hmm. Mirziyoyev and the like as well. So this opening up is there. But as far as the election is concerned, it it is true. There isn't any really other candidate. And, And the governmental control aspects of 
other opinions and allowing the media to sort of involve itself with criticism. There have been certain, certainly silencing, muting media criticism as this election is taking place because of the desire to control so things don't, I would say, go out of hand and get too hurly-burly. And But at the bottom line, the substance hasn't changed that much as far as how they conduct the elections. Mm. And as far as the use of administrative resources and traveling around, yes, that's something, frankly, every incumbent uses. Uh, here in the United States, presidents use Air Force One to fly all over the United States and giving programs and speeches and fundraising and everything on, on this respect. So it's that is not new in any, even in, in, in democracies and like too. But of course, in, this, in the circumstances of Uzbekistan, where you have so much in government control, yeah, such as yeah, the media, yeah. sure, sure. it's yeah. not surprising to me to see what is going on. And there it is a different political, if you will, culture that's operational mm-hmm. in, in Uzbekistan mm-hmm. for some time. Obviously, there's no comparison, Ambassador, as you alluded to. I mean, yes, in the United States, we see presidents uh, using the uh, Air Force One, but um, that's it. I mean, in Uzbekistan or in other Central Asian countries, like it's just a whole set of issues that we should look at into how presidents are in advantageous position on so many levels compared to if there would be any opposition in the first place. But in this case, it looks like there was no opposition, and the ones who tried could not make it. The authorities used legal means to block them, and I guess there was a... I thought maybe uh, I was just a little excited about him, the singer who was uh, making noise on the platform of Air Party, Um, right? Um, What what happened to him, Barno? He decided to quit quietly, right? And not quietly, Mm. as I remember, Mm. uh, he gave a video interview to us Mm. uh, from Turkey where he talked about the real pressure on him, Mm. on his family, Mm. especially on his mother. Mm. She is sick. And then um, he was very emotionally exhausted out of these pressures. And that's why he said that he want to quit because he doesn't believe that there will be some chance for him to even be registered for Mm. these presidential elections. And the same happened with the other part. Party, which is a truth and development, the Social Democratic Party. And I would like to stress here about the leader of this party. Mm. Uh, to be honest, it was unexpected that he will get large support from the people of Uzbekistan, especially from labor migrants from abroad. And he gathered uh, up to 20,000 signatures, as he says, and mm. then his uh, members of the party said. So they were not able even to be registered as a party, the, not even the candidate for you, president. You are talking about the singer or the, someone else? The, the singer is from the Air Party, yeah. and there was another major uh, party. Allah <laughs> Yes, that's right. A Truth and Development Party. Mm. I think that party gained more support than Eric Party's leaders, the singer Jahangir Otajanov. Oh yeah, the one uh, whose uh, rallies were disturbed by unknown people like group of women or things like that, right? This is, this is the one we are talking about? The both of them, both of them got these attacks from the Aban women. Mm. <laughs> this is a, a special woman group who were used in mostly in post-Soviet countries, mostly in Central Asia. We remember it from Kyrgyzstan mm. that were used in the 2000s to 2004, I guess. So this uh, group of women were actively used in Uzbekistan as well. It's before the four months of the election. They tried to not allow these people to gather the uh, signatures to be registered in the justice ministry. Mm-hmm. So this was, yeah, we noticed that. 
and uh, and there is another group of people it's there they also tried to make it a third group of position uh, it's there was a very famous bloggers and then writers they were also tried this azot vatan they were also not allowed even to get registered by justice ministry mm. so we know this time three groups mm. And the leader of one of these, Hidr Nazar Allakulov, gained very large support from the country, which also shows that the waste majority of the population is aware what's going on in the power, uh, what is the level of corruption, what about the reforms, the promises which are not fulfilled during the first term of Mirziyayev. So he was really raising some critical questions about Mirziyayev's first first <coughs> term in office. You know, we, we always, whenever we talk about uh, elections or developments on the election eves in Central Asia, we always question this, okay, why not to let some genuine opposition to come in? I mean, still presidents are going to win the election, but why not to bring some genuine opposition? Just let them come in, let them compete. I mean, you know, we would we'd expect exactly. Uzbekistan would do at least something like this, given the, the confidence that Mirziyayev is trying to paint beyond the borders. But that, that's very interesting. Again, we are back again talking about the same challenges that always we talk about in elections in Central Asia. Ambassador, one thing in that perspective that comes to my mind is, you know, we know, like, like our participants are talking about, we know this is not really a sort of an election election, a genuine kind of a contested election. Why right. Why organizations like OSCE bother to monitor this? Why do they even get involved with Why you want to put your name in that kind of process? Well, I suspect if there was a debate in the OSCE to accept this, they were presumably invited hmm. by the uh, Uzbek government to do so, fully knowing, I would imagine, that is from the side of the Uzbek government, that, that the OSCE would be critical of them. But I think it was a part of the, if you will, campaign to show greater openness and to accept the criticisms that they would get from the OSCE. And the answer to that is what we've heard from Senator Safaev and others that were in Washington. I'm not in Washington, by the way. I'm in Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. But uh, that, well, you know, yes, there were there are problems. It's not a full-blown democracy, etc., etc. But the real issue, and you all pointed this out, is, well, how about the people of Uzbekistan? What do they say, and what do they think? And and that's a voice that is, is has to be controlled because, I think, of the fear of what might happen if people really felt that they could be critical and, mm. and not be punished for it, and that the instruments of government such as justice ministries and police and security forces really would have a hands-off because they do abide by the laws that would technically give them this right. Mm. I find it interesting because this year we're looking at 30 years uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. I've been speaking a lot because I was in the Soviet Union at the time in Leningrad, St. Petersburg, covering the Baltic Republics and the like. And I think it's well worth recognizing mm. one of the things that were that came out in 19 1989 and 90 was that Gorbachev hoping to ref and talking about reform perestroika and glasnost and allowed elections to occur in which the unexpected happened and that was the party of power that was the communist party got voted out in many areas including in Lithuania and and, and even the 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 growth of, of of the Russian Federation as having its own separate congress and things and Boris Yeltsin joining it and things and i think this is a lesson that is certainly in the mind i think of 
of leaders that if you allow this, the unexpected might happen, as has happened in other elections where the government said, well, let's let's see what happens. And using all the instruments that they have to think that they can control it, and the unexpected happens, and then what do you you know, you have you can have a situation like Belarus where people and they don't want to have that. And so therefore I think it's an extremely controlled yeah. atmosphere in Uzbekistan because they just don't want to have possibility of an uncontrollable uh, situation developing mm-hmm. where you have all kinds of people and views emerging, even conflicting with one another, that then would lead to the fear of instability and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So let's let's see what OSC is going to say. Just to say that I completely agree that these authoritarian habits, the fear, as Ambassador Kroll just said, within the political elite of instability uh, emerging, I think that's a very troubling aspect of these. And I know we're going to turn more to the last five years. But, you know, if you I've been going to Uzbekistan regularly for the past mm. four years or so, and I I'd agree that Mirzoyev was genuinely and is genuinely popular, and I think he could have easily won Mm. the election had they registered opposition parties. But I think especially in the past few years with the Sardoba dam collapse, Mm. which really in some ways put into focus a lot of of frustration or or sense that the authorities were, again, mired in corruption or inattentive to social problems, infrastructure, gas and electricity shortages, as Bruce has written about Mm. many times and Ozodlik has reported. I think a lot of these, of the anxiety about frustration over the lack of services and corruption is probably at the front of mind of a lot of the elite in terms of how to approach these elections. And yet, and yet, I would say that I still think Mirzoyev was genuinely and is genuinely popular, and the system would have benefited, and of course the ambitious reform agenda would have benefited from a genuinely competitive election. Right, yeah, very interesting. So let's see what kind of report OSCE is going to come out of this um, very controlled, as Ambassador Pope said, controlled uh, election environment. Uh, One more point, Ambassador, I wanted to raise uh, with you is, you know, in recent days, yeah, we we discussed about the why OSCE decided what it decided in terms of being on the on the ground, uh, giving Uzbek authorities to talk about the election was monitored by OSCE, things like that. But also, you alluded to that earlier, uh, Ambassador, that in recent days there was a congressional delegation in Uzbekistan, and we had high-profile State Department officials visiting Uzbekistan. I guess Ambassador Wendy Sherman was there, I guess, in recent days, and also Uzbek senators or delegation, high-profile delegation coming to Washington, D.C. I mean, it kind of raises question, why all this is happening just one week ahead of the election? I mean, what kind of message are we trying to give with this, with this traffic? Well, uh, I would suspect that the congressional delegations that have gone to Uzbekistan were, were there at the invitation of the of the Uzbek government, if not the legislature of Uzbekistan. That's generally the nature of things. And it's part of the campaign that the Uzbek government and their embassy uh, in Washington, I think, are very, very assiduous of promoting an interest in Uzbekistan which and, and visits, which really uh, were very rare back in the day when I was there, except for discussions about Afghanistan, another subject. But I think now there's this, this sort of, we would call it a, you know, a, a campaign to present Uzbekistan in a light that we're open, this is different, and sending a delegation to Washington, as well as inviting congressional uh, delegations uh, to where they meet with President Merzirev. And I think this plays into the sense this is a world leader. And again, the conferences that that President Merzioyev has hosted 
did is to show that Uzbekistan is on the map, it's a regional leader, it's engaged in the things of this nature for the purposes of, of that, that's their that's their policy. Uh, I don't think these are really a, a designed by the United States government, which really doesn't think strategically in these regards, you know, with congressional delegate, you know, who's sending them, why are they going? They're going because they were invited to go, and they're being, you know, shown everything. I'm sure they're eating lots of cloth and visiting uh, uh, Samarkand, and, 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 you know, it's it's a beautiful country, as they say. Uh, so, um, yeah. and Wendy Sherman, her going there in the State Department, I, I suspect it's part of the regular meetings that officials have, the U.S. and that, but also, I think, on the, on the heels of what occurred in Afghanistan, this is probably an effort to try to, quote-unquote, reassure the neighbors of uh, the United States commitment to, you know, their independence, sovereignty, and territorial integrity, you know, the litany have and and things of this nature so i think it's it's not so much focused so much on this election that's coming up but it's in the broader policy of uzbekistan in in its engagement with the world including with the united states Mm. and other countries okay okay bruce so we need to move on but a very final question on the election then we will talk about the uh, president mirziab's first term in office so i was reading an observer say that the outcome of uh, this election is not in doubt but it will be interesting to see by what percentage Mirziaev will decide to win the election. Sort of a tragic, funny comment there. But will there be any indication in terms of whether this election will give any hint into his next term in office? Well, that's a tough one. You know, I, I mean, one thing I, I would want to mention is I, I said earlier that clearly this is all staged, and, and I think everyone would agree with that. You know, the, the one thing that I'm happy that I don't see this time is the praise for the president that used to accompany that went certainly the last couple of times Karimov ran where the, his competitors were actually saying that he was doing a great job while they were supposedly campaigning for themselves. And, of course, a lot of us would remember Abdul Hafiz Jalalov, the lone competitor against Islam Karimov in the 2000 elections who emerged from the polling booth and announced that he had cast his own ballot for Karimov. You know, so I haven't seen that. And that's good. Now, um, the election, you know, I I was also looking at that on Twitter last night and and I, I thought about all the other presidential elections in Central Asia. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is when they run for reelection, they almost have to have a bigger percentage than they did the first time, because what you you have to present this as as public approval. So it's very difficult to like, you know, we know that they mess with the numbers and that there's probably several officials who already know what the res- the published results are going to be, even though the election is more than a week away. Uh, but you can't you can't lower the percentage for the incumbent because then that kind of gives the impression that maybe there was there's people that were voted for him the first time that are unhappy with him now. So I don't, I don't see that that's, that that will happen. I, I would imagine he will get at least, the percentage will be at least the same and probably a little higher around in this election. I also agree with Steve that he would probably win on his own, even if they let the opposition, some opposition candidates win yeah. or run in the election that, you know, I mean, he... Some things have changed in Uzbekistan for the better since he's been there. And I know this leads into the next part of the conversation, but I think that he... You know, it, if nothing else, he's not Islam Karimov. And he's not Islam Karimov in the last 10 years that Karimov was in power. You know, so there is hope that, that things are going to change. And, of course, when Mirziyoyev speaks publicly, the things he says are very good. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, none of it ever gets done. But he's, you know, we don't want corruption. We're not going to put up with it. We don't want. We're not going to put up with forced labor in the cotton fields. We're not, you know, again and again and again. This is what he always says. People are continually caught for all these things anyway, despite him saying that. Mm-hmm. But he still portrays himself as someone who's against all this stuff, and 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 he wants to be seen as a uh, as yeah. a reformer. No, in it's, the country. It, it's good to say those things for for PR outside of Uzbekistan. It just sounds very good when you listen to those stuff coming out of Uzbekistan and sitting in Washington D.C. or elsewhere, and I guess in Europe. Uh, yeah, talking about his next five years, it's also important to look uh, how his last five years have been in the office. I guess political reform wasn't on the agenda to begin with. But, you know, once coming to power, Mirziyoyev made lots of pro- other promises. There were indeed some positive steps taken, as Bruce, you were talking about. But there were things that didn't change, that stayed the same. And also in recent days, there have been some reports about these step backs from the early days of his presidency. In that context, it's important to take a glance at the findings of recent report by U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. And we have Steve Severlo to talk about that. So in that report, the the commission says that though 50 people were released, over 2,000 people remain in prison for peacefully practicing their religious beliefs. And also we should talk about the baby steps in terms of the media freedom. Of, Of course, economy is always very relevant topic for Uzbekistan, and it is particularly relevant given the stress put by COVID-19 to whole world, including Uzbekistan. So how he's performing there. So there is a lot to talk about, and we will try to touch bases on each of that very briefly. So let's continue the conversation, talking about these and many other questions very shortly. First, let me recap the debate that today on the Majlis podcast, I'm joined by Ambassador George Kroll, former U.S. Ambassador to Uzbekistan, Steve Severglo, Associate Professor of Human Rights at the University of Southern California, Barno Anwar, Senior Journalist with Ready for Freedom Liberties Uzbek Service, locally known as Ozotlik, and Bruce Panier, the editor of Ready for Freedom Liberties Central Asia blog, Kishlak Owazi. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis podcast and Ready for Freedom Liberties Media Manager here in Washington, D.C., and we are discussing Mirziyev's first term in office in Uzbekistan. So, Steve, we know, uh, you know, as we discussed, Mirziyayev will win. (laughs) Uh, On October 25th, he will start his uh, second term in office. But what he has been doing in his first term, Steve, so you you guys just uh, did a report, authored a report for U.S. Commission on International Freedom on religious freedom, looking into the first term in office of President Mirziyayev. So why not we start with you here? So tell us about the report and your findings. I mean, this report was a collective effort. Of course, the commission helped to open the door to allow me to to meet with the Uzbek government. Earlier, I was able to visit some prisons in Uzbekistan. But the main objective was to figure out how many religious prisoners there's been some, as you just alluded to, there's been more news about the release of political prisoners. But how many religious prisoners, which made up the vast majority of the thousands of political prisoners that we would talk about? under Karimov, um, and even into Mirzoe's first term now, how many were actually released and how many remain in prison? Because I think that issue, along with torture and cotton, of course, really has been the center of this conversation about human rights. So the objective was to figure out and get some clarity into that. And because Mirzoev has taken some steps for increased transparency, he's talked about reducing the number of prisons, and, and he issued a, a decree in the cabinet of ministers that, again, disclosed more information about the prison system, uh, there was a good opportunity 
opportunity to take take on this research. And so going there, that was that was the goal. And what came out of meetings with recently released prisoners, human rights defenders and the government was that while they have released thousands of religious prisoners and that this is a tendency that even began in the late Karima period, prison population was 44,000. Now it's 22,000 in about six, seven, eight years. That's a big change. There are still, as the report says, about 2,000 approximately, give or take, people that are convicted on these extremism charges, charges that are so vague and so overbroad that they violate international standards. And as the commission says, there is no evidence, we have to be very clear, no credible evidence that any of these people are connected to violence, even though they're convicted on extremism charges and and classified as, as threats. These are troubling trials that included torture, that didn't comply with due process. Every single one of these people that's on a charge related to extremism, their cases ought to be looked at. And the report goes further and actually for the first time reveals 81 specific religious prisoners' names that should be released immediately. And we're referring to them as religious prisoners of conscience. And and the report goes on to explain in some ways the approach of the government to releasing people, which has not been exactly in compliance with, with their national standards in the sense that they ask people to pledge forgiveness. It's contingent on an admission of guilt, which of course, again, begs the question whether there's been reform. If the government is unwilling to acknowledge that Karimov's policy towards political prisoners and religion was restrictive and repressive and out of line with international commitment. When you put these arguments like, you know, the way in which they they are still kept in in behind the door, when you put this argument that this is baseless, what you guys are doing, so how they try to defend the position that they are in? You know, Mohammed, it's a really interesting interaction with the government. And I have to, again, I have to stress that the government actually welcomed this research. I had eight government agencies meet mm. with me at length. Mm. I met with the prison administration. And we would discuss this. And I would say that on the one hand, Uzbekistan has gotten a lot of praise for repatriating women and children from formerly ISIS-controlled territories. They've been rehabilitating these individuals. And, and that's something that even some Western European nations haven't been doing. But in the case of these individuals, we're talking about thousands of people who have been in prison since the early Kareem of days, or I should say late 90s, early 2000s. Of course, the arrests have also occurred under Mirzoy. And in those cases, you've got people who who have suffered torture where there's no evidence of violence. But the response often would be there seems to be a disconnect. On the one hand, there seems to be a recognition that, that there has to be an updated approach, you could say, to prevention of violent extremism. But I think there's also another part of the story here which is that the security services still hold sway. And Mm. there's both inertia, but I think as we were discussing earlier, just a a sort of fear that sits right at the center of the authoritarian political system, which says no, no budging on ideological opponents, people that we consider to be enemies of the state or suspicious or traitors. There's a deep unwillingness to revisit that assumption, which I think is sort of a poison within the system that has to be addressed. Very interesting. You know, they stuck there for some reason. Also, Steve, just to follow up on that. So you are saying that, yeah, there are estimated 2000 people still uh, in this category who are still in jail. But you are saying that this is just estimate number could be more than this. 
let me try to be as clear as possible. Mm. When we asked the government in the questionnaire, which is in the appendix of the report, mm. to actually account for, if not give the names, mm. then at least list by charge mm. how many prisoners were convicted on these mm. extremism charges. Mm. And by that, I mean the very problematic charge of anti-constitutional activity, Article 159, mm. and the articles relating to the possession of banned literature, 244. What their answer was, was, Yusuf, we will give you the total number of prisoners, which is around 23,000 people, but we won't disclose the specific charges, which, of course, created the problem, which we've experienced before, where we needed to go corroborate that information with informal sources, civil society activists. And we literally counted estimates based on, in the prison barracks, how many people, so recently religious prisoners, some of whom were released in June, spoke with me, met with me. One was in prison for 21 years, and he described exactly how each prison barrack looks, how many people are religious prisoners in each barrack. So that's how we added up those numbers, estimated about 2,200. Again, that is, it could be more, it could be less, but I think the point is that it's certainly a very substantial number, more than all the former Soviet states combined. Mm. And if still, what it means is that the problem of religious prisoners is substantial and still widespread and has to be addressed and should mm. remain at the top of the agenda. Right, right. That also brings another question to my mind, Steve. Uh, and also, colleagues, I'm sure all of you have gone through the report, which is terrific, and I recommend all of our listeners to go to USERP's, uh, U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedoms website and take a look into this report. Lots of hard work went into this. It's terrific report to read, an eye-opener about Uzbekistan in terms of what has been happening over the past five years. So, Bruce Barno, Ambassador, if if you have any question, please um, think about it, and I will ask you guys to, to pose those questions to Steve in a minute. But just to follow up, uh, Steve, on something that you just said about the, the estimate. So, were you free, uh, Steve, to do all the research you wanted to do on this? Yes, I mean that again. I I, I want to acknowledge that that this is you know Bruce and Ambassador Kroll and mm. Barno were saying things have changed in the sense that I was able mm. to freely interview people. Mm. That doesn't mean that people weren't engaging in self censorship at times, and and there is uh, that line that mm. you have to be always aware of in doing human rights research in Uzbekistan. But it changes. I mean the fact that I'm able to have these conversations in Andijan and in the heart of the Fergana Valley in Margilan says a lot about some of these changes. But at the same time, I encountered phrasing and terminology and an attitude in the government meetings, which at times was extremely reminiscent of the Karimov period. And I had, you know, the prosecutor general's office, when I talked about how these individuals have been in prison for 20 years and really need to be looked at, I was told that, you know, for the government, in some sense, there's not often a distinction made between violent extremism, actual acts of violence, and what they consider ideological extremism, which is thought crimes, people that subscribe to a religious philosophy that may be out of step with the official view. And that's enough sometimes to be classified as an extremist and make you a threat, which, is, of course, is not in line with international law. Right. Barno, Ambassador, Bruce, if you have any question to Steve, otherwise we will move on to some other topics that we would want to cover in this conversation. Uh, th- this is uh, uh, George Kroll. I-, I would just note, and-, and Steve would know this too, and <laughs> myself mm-hmm. as being a former bureaucrat, is that bureaucracies in and of themselves are very adverse to change and the people within them because they the whole reason for bureaucracies is to maintain a system and it becomes self-generating and self-protective and the like, mm-hmm. which is why reforms – 
of this nature are so difficult because they have to be implemented by people. And therefore, the idea of training people or new or having just new people with a different attitude in the bureaucracies, whether it's law enforcement or, or security forces, is really what is necessary in many respects. But it's also very difficult to do because either how do you get rid of people, but then the new people that would have to come in, will they take a different approach and the like as well? And so um, I think it's very good to have these reports that have a lot of detail in them for them to work on. Uh, and they will give their answer to people like Steve and the outside world or anything. But the main thing is internally of what this does and mean for themselves and does it have an effect. That that would be an important element of how this might be able to change as people change in mm. the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Steve, what's your thinking? I mean, you you did this very detailed report with uh, along with other colleagues at the commission. What is your hope and expectation, maybe idea, uh, in which ways Uzbekistan, Uzbek authorities are going to benefit from this report? And are you sure that they will? <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously or realistically optimistic, and, and that's why I'm in this human rights business. Of course, you have to be. I think that there can be some very immediate short-term gains. Of course, the most important thing that I've witnessed before on politi- working on political prisoners, but even now on religious prisoners, is that the government has been engaging on individual cases. So what I said that I, I got to meet Habibullah Madmarov. He was in prison for 21 years. There's a picture of him in the report holding a picture of him as a young man 21 years ago. And then when I met him in June, and that was a result of Yusuf and others raising his case. So I first and most immediately, I hope that these 81 individuals outlined get looked at very quickly and that there that we will see releases and we don't see enough and we don't see enough quickly but i i hope we will and on a longer term basis i hoped to contribute to an understanding of the modern history of uzbekistan and that ties into another point which is there still hasn't been in these past five years an acknowledgement a sober critical conversation of who karimov was how destructive the human rights abuses over 27 years of his rule were and how that still has a corrosive impact on today's Uzbekistan. I I wanted to contribute to that Mm. discussion. And that's why I'm looking forward to the report in a month or so, hopefully being in Uzbek and Russian. And hopefully that will actually affect future conversations Mm. and maybe affect the policy in total or or on on the whole within the criminal justice system and the prison system, which still needs a lot of reform, as does the religion law, Mm. which they passed into, into law in July, which largely reproduces a lot of Karimov's approach mm. to that issue mm-hmm. 20, 20 odd years ago. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is about the report. Barno, you have been, as a Uzbek journalist, you have been following, you know, last five years, you know, first term of Mirziyayev. So what comes to your mind, Barno, in terms of what changed, what did not change in Uzbekistan in his first term? Compared to Karimov's era in the country, I mean, we we know he made lots of promises. Promises aside, in practical terms, what has changed in the country, and what stayed the same? It's a very hard question for me. As Bruce notes, there is a lot of publicity, mm. yeah, and everybody is talking about the corruption. And on social media, even we see some bloggers who are writing about the corruption close to president's mm. family or for the very high mm. uh, officials' family. So these issues were not even touched. It was under big taboo during the Karimov's time, yeah. especially at the last 10 years, as Bruce, Bruce notes. 
So uh, social media, you visibly got a little bit free than uh, during the Karimov's time. People are exchanging their uh, hard critics on the comments, mm. even on our website, on our platforms, uh, on YouTube, on Facebook. And then there are many groups on Facebook, especially this Potributal Ooze and the others mm. who are openly criticizing high-ranking officials and their companies. And they really allowed critics on the corruption, especially these are the deal of the last two or three years. Mm. And we had a lot of investigations about this. And there are directly president's family claims against high levels of corruption uh, and then of course there are a lot of disappointments mm. from our audience and i i really appreciate the question raised by uh, ambassador what about the people what are their feelings mm. and expectations mm. and hopes after the election or mm. during the election mm. so well, we are facing uh, hundreds of appeals letters phone calls from the audience mm. especially through the mm. social media and we have special platform many of our colleagues already know about it this is called than telegram it's like uh, papers or letters or messages from directly our audience go yeah. if you go to this pl platform yeah. and then simply be there for 10 minutes and surf these letters videos audio calls you yeah. can imagine the scale of disappointment from the audience so on one hand we have loud promises and loud statements about the reforms and mm. how they fulfilled during the first term mm. of president. Yeah. I, I would like to just add that recently they launched a very big platform called Reforms Us. Mm. There are very great debt data numbers and volumes of online pages what was done during the first term and on the other hand we have uh, hundreds of appeals from our listeners readers mm. and you know what is interesting before it was mostly about individual cases mm. Mm. individual problems now we have received started receiving appeals from group of people who are complaining about the budget organization situation. Mm. It's mostly about lack of income, mm. no proper social and medical protection and so on. If mm. we have enough time, just give two numbers, both yeah. of official. For example, minimum wage is still very low. It's like mm. 822,000, 100,000 of some, which is 79 US dollars per month. Mm. And there is a Official, another number, it's the consumer basket, mm. how we say it's mm. officially marked as more than 2 million some, which is over $200 per person per month. Mm. So you can compare these two numbers. And our Uzbek family usually have five to seven members. It's parents, grandparents, and three or four kids, which, which means a minimum 1000 or $1,500 needed only for survival. Uh, mm. for per mm. month for mm. the family mm. so these numbers when you, when you put those together shows are that it's very mm. insufficient situation right. in the country for the ordinary people and you know mm. that there is not a big change in this term from the beginning of presidency of Merziyev and today mm. so that's why mm. we see mm. not many optimistic views from our audience what's going to happen mm. next Five years. Interesting, interesting. Bruce, are you still with us? I know you, you're supposed to go. 
Oh, yeah, I'm still here. Okay, so Bruce, just uh, quickly, you know, when you just imagine for a minute those positive messages coming out from Mirziyev when he took over the country, like it excited lots of people, including some of our own colleagues, and obviously lots of people in Washington, D.C., and put that picture in one frame and look into today. What comes to your mind, your mind in terms of the what has been happening over the past five years or so? And what has changed? What did not change? And with that, I guess we also need to conclude the discussion. It's been a quite a time. In fact, there are two distinctly different views of this. If you are outside of Uzbekistan and you are looking at Uzbekistan's foreign policy, then you'd have to say that, that, that there's a huge difference here. You know, and, and we've talked about this before, but I mean, it really is. I mean, Uzbekistan scared its neighbors under, under Karimov. And I know this yeah. because I traveled to all the neighboring yeah. countries and through Uzbekistan all the time. And people yeah. were worried, yeah. you know, biggest population, biggest military, uh, very antagonistic a lot of times, you know. And so everyone is welcoming the fact that Uzbekistan is a much friendlier country right. to its neighbors, that it is more open, mm-hmm. more willing to engage with anyone in the in the foreign community for the most part. Lots of different countries. But from inside the country, and of course, they like it just involves the people in the country. You know, that, as Barno said, a lot of things just have not changed. And while there have been some positive aspects, you know, they've tried to cut down on forced labor, uh, you know, and Steve, mm-hmm. Steve had mentioned mm-hmm. that they did release some high-profile political prisoners uh, and a lot of other prisoners, too. They reduced the prison population. Um, it, there's a lot of talk, obviously, w- which is unfortunate. But what, what a lot of people see, too, uh, you know, and this is the old mantra in Central mm-hmm. Asia, anywhere you go, that when you bring new people into power, you bring a bunch of people with empty pockets into power. Right. So that's why they don't like change, why they're resistant to the idea of like bringing in a new leader sometimes is because they figure that they bring in the new guy. He brings in his team. They start looting the country again, or is at least the people that are in power right now have been looting the country for a while and they don't need they won't steal as much money. Um, you know, so Mirzioyev comes in. Karimov had two daughters. Uh, you know, we know he was raised in a state orphanage, essentially, even though he wasn't technically an orphan. But now you get the Mirzioyev family coming in. And, and, now, and of course, the sons-in-law are doing really well. Uh, they've <laughs> got fingers in all kinds of businesses all over the country. The mayor of Tashkent, Jahangir Artikoljaev, was on the outs. He was ready to flee the country, you know, under Karimov. I mean, his business was practically ruined. He shows up. He's getting all the contracts and these very shady tenders that are going on. People are aware of mm-hmm. that this is happening. Uh, in the country, you know, and there's other other figures like that in in the Mirziyoyev government too. Uh, you know, people were probably glad to see Rustam Inuyatov get pretty much moved out of government entirely. He was a very fearful figure for most of Uzbekistan. But at the same time, like I said, he, they were just replaced with these other people, mm-hmm. which is contradictory to what Mirziyoyev is saying. That, you know, I won't tolerate this and, and I'm going to get you out mm-hmm. if you do it. So it doesn't happen like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the last thing I would say, too, is that, and Bardo would know this better than me, um, is that the, the, the foreign debt is, is ballooned. I mean, it, you can't oh, even say yeah. ballooned. It wasn't mm-hmm. very much at all. But I I saw just last month they were saying it's gone to 24, more than $24 billion. It was almost nothing when he came to power. I've heard it's $32 billion. He's spending a lot of money on different projects and, you know, hopefully the infrastructure will be improved. He talks about the new Uzbekistan. That's the line, the new Uzbekistan. But while there have been some positive domestic, the third renaissance, that sounds even better. Uh, and I hope it happens. Um, but like I said, there's, there's for, for every step forward they take, they, they seem to take two steps backwards somewhere else. Where, um, where, where he's spending this $24 billion? I mean, it's a lots of money, right? Even for Uzbekistan, like 30 million people. Yes. But it's also lots of money, like compared to from nothing, suddenly you have like $24 billion debt. So where he's spending this money? 
if yeah. if I may, I, I can just give you two numbers. Yeah. So as I as I mentioned, they they, they launched the pre-platform reform schools, mm. and they said that for the last five years reforms, they spent 114 trillion soms and 30 billion dollars, which all together will be approximately 41 billion US dollar. Oh. And the, the other foreign debts of the country from the uh, it's a data official data from September is almost 36 billion dollars. Oh, okay. Not 24. So mm -hmm. They're not saying exactly from where they're getting money, money how they're using it's not transparent. It's really hard to count all these um, money finances, but we can compare these two numbers at least. Both mm -hmm. of them from official sources. I'm just thinking, Steve, you are, you know, roaming around there. I mean, are roads changing? Are you seeing new buildings, uh, residential areas being built? I don't know. New villages emerging. Uh, are new hospitals emerging? Our salaries are rising. I mean, why he needs all this money well, for and where he's spending it? Well, you know, your, your question raises, you know, a number of recent investigations, including by Radio for Europe, have broken, you know, the Shavasoy project outside of Tashkent, this presidential residence. And, and you know, I think the Abod Mahala project is right. Revitalization project projects, and we've seen in Andijan, uh, Fergana, of course, all over Tashkent, a lot of new housing projects announced. And, and there is obviously a legitimate need to create housing for a growing population. And uh, but at the same time, when you ask about that, I, I think about the other one, another big human rights issue, which is the forced evictions that have mm -hmm. resulted um, from these big projects and a lot of desperate people. And Bruce has documented a lot of these de desperate cases of people driven to suicide or, or violence, seeing no way out in the face of these projects that seem to be unaccountable and often are led by individuals close to, to the president. And, you know, Bruce also mentioned Artik Hajayev, the mayor. I think he's a really good embodiment of, again, this, this contradiction in terms of reforms. So when you have a mayor who openly threatens journalists and threatens to, quote unquote, quote unquote, turn them gay for making critical statements, but at the same time, has such powerful sway and, and obviously a large hold on resources. That's again, that's an area that hasn't been dealt with and, and is just, uh, I think, uh, a real challenge to the credibility of the reform narrative. Yeah, yeah. And also we are seeing perhaps, uh, you know, it was not on the news before. Maybe uh, it's something new phenomenon. I don't know. Uh, these crackdowns against LGBT rights, it's it, it just uh, become a huge issue in Uzbekistan these days. Um, and yes, uh, I guess we need to wrap up the conversation here, maybe with the last point from Ambassador. So Ambassador, this is what we recall from the first uh, term of President Mirziaev. Of course, there has been lots of changes like, you know, the, the publications like Kun Oz or Gazeta Oz, that the type of things that they are publishing, I mean, it's something that we have not seen during Karimov's era. And this uh, critical conversation that we see in uh, social media platforms that's taking place. These are s certainly something new and uh, certainly positive. And I guess we were expecting more than that to happen. But, um, you know, keeping that in mind. And now uh, we also think that Mirziaev is going to win this election when uh, people will go to Poland to uh, October 21st. Where your eyes will be to determine where he will be taking the country in his second term in office? Well, I think that it would probably be a continuation of of uh, what we've seen in the last uh, five years of, uh, the, you know, in foreign policy and in domestic policy, I'm sure there'll be a lot of talk of, you know, more reforms, deeper reforms, things of this nature. But 
the reality is, will these really be reforms? That Hmm. is turning a situation on its head, just the way things are. I mean, evolutionary reforms are one thing, but they're very difficult to achieve when you get at some of the cardinal issues of inequality and corruption and things like this, which include the bureaucracy of those that are to implement the reforms. And so it will be, I think, more of this, but will there be cardinal changes of the type that they talk about but may be necessary. And I think, again, it's worth contemplating the feelings of that large majority of Uzbeks who are not attached to internet. I think they all have cell phones. They talk to one another, even the Kishlakar and whatever. Uh, But it's a different world than those that you really are seeing, like Tashkent or the urbanized crowd or the people that generally you would be talking to who have expectations and things of Mm -hmm. that. But to actually get down into that large number of people who see and actually see things like, okay, there was the stability of Karimov's reign. It's not Afghanistan. It's not even Kyrgyzstan. And, and you know, but there is that issue that all these changes that were in the, the cities, not just Tashkent, but if you went to Andijan, Fragana, Namangan, whatever, all these sort of central areas that were kind of torn apart and new, new modernization buildings in and trees felled, it, it, it transformed. And this is under, under Karimov. You know, the feelings about that of how much housing is actually being built, you know, for the people that, as um, Steve and Bruce has said have been uprooted by many of mm. these things, and are they being taken care of? And what is the price of Lepioshka or whatever like that? These yeah. are important elements that I don't think make it into a lot of the uh, scenarios when you're mm. listening and talking to the more urban, if you will, elite who are either outside or inside Uzbekistan that are more connected. Right, right. And this is will that will there be real mm. reforms? Mm. Mm. To, to deal with these mm. people mm. that form the bulk of the population. Right, right. Yeah, I was I was thinking to end the conversation right here. Just, uh, Bruce, if you are still here, uh, maybe just last comment from you. Earlier, I was also um, reading a comment by an, another expert about Mirziyayev's second term in office, which I, we are talking like in a way that uh, we already know the result. I guess that's what the expectation is, that he will be elected for second term in office. So the expert was saying, like, you know, what, uh, what we should be looking at is what whether he will leave the office at the end of his second term. Because I guess what Uzbekistan's constitution say, the way it stands now is president can be elected only two times, I guess. So the, the thing is, whether, yeah, whether he will leave or he will try to play with the constitution in this or the other way to stay in the office at the end of his second term. That will be something to keep our eyes on. Russo, is there any lesson from your perspective? Is there any lesson from President Mirziai from his first term as he, he will be going to his second term on October 25th? Is there any lesson for him from his first term? Well, that's difficult. I, I would agree that, that I don't see any policy changes coming. Um, so it's hard to say that he's he's learned some, I suppose he must have learned a few lessons, probably more about who he can trust and who he can't within his own inner circle. Maybe he did, um, not, maybe he did not learn, but is there any lesson that he should learn? looking into his first term in office as he oh, is. Oh, okay. Well, then, yeah, then that's totally different. And you mentioned a good point, you know, that I've also wondered, too, what he's going to do when the second term mm-hmm. is coming to an end. If he's going to if he's going to keep making these promises about reforms, 
Uh, and in fact, he, he makes all kinds of huge promises everywhere he goes, right? He goes to Kyrgyzstan and says, we're going to invest in your hydropower project. Uh, we're, same, he goes to Tajikistan, yeah, we're going to give you money. He's been, and as Barno said, he's going all around the country telling everybody, we're going to build this for you, we're going to do this for you. He's, he's got to stop making these promises and get down to something real. I mean, you know, it, it just starts to look disingenuous. It is disingenuous. But I mean, you know, it's it's been going on for so long now that, you know, he says, this is what we're going to do. I promise this is what we're going to do domestically. These are our reforms. And, and you see that it doesn't happen. And he should just stop that. You know, I, I'm one of the people that don't think he's going to leave at the end of his second term. I, I don't see that he's a reformer, although he project, he wants to project that kind of image. I think if, when he doesn't go at the end of his second term, that everyone should stop even hoping that this is going to be a reforms uh, and that he's a reformer. Um, but the least he can do is stop making all these promises unless he really intends to get them done. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, we have to conclude the conversation here, but I guess we will be back as uh, Uzbekistan is gearing up with the election. Let's see what comes out of that. And after that, perhaps we will uh, get back uh, and to talk about the result of the election. So thank you very much, Bruce Panier, the editor of Ready for the Liberty Central Asia blog, Kishlok Owazi. And big thanks goes to Ambassador George Krull, former U.S. Ambassador to Uzbekistan, Steve Severlo, Associate Professor of Human Rights at the University of Southern California and Barnu Anwar, senior journalist with Radio Free Republic Liberty's Uzbek service, locally known as Ozotlik. And this is for me, Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis Radio Free Republic Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. Colleagues, thank you very much. Until next week, bye bye.